0: The market pretends like nothing's happened in the regional banking system, but you've had three of the top four largest bank failures in history, back to back to back, and we're just kind of sitting here like, oh, well, it's just bad risk management. Well, it's not bad risk management. It's Things break when you go from zero to 5% so far in 12 months. They broke because they bought mortgage-backed securities and long-term dated treasuries. They are actually required by the bank regulators to own these securities. Now, they should have done a little bit better hedging strategy, yes. Silicon Valley Bank probably should have done a better job on their hold to maturity accounting and all their different hedges. But First Republic was a damn good bank. And we did a lot of stuff with them. We talked to them on a lot of stuff. We even talked to Silicon on Subline. We knew all these players. They were not like just throwing money out. They did a lot of pretty intelligent things. And this whole system has collapsed. It's made JPM and Bank of America bigger and better. But generally what it means to us is the regional banking system is completely frozen. Um, if I can't get one person to show up for a subline, which is the safest, easiest loan to make, Um, you know, I feel like, you know, it's a pretty, it's in pretty bad spot. Welcome to The Fort Podcast. I'm Chris Powers. And on this
1: show, I talk to some of the most fascinating minds in business and discuss important topics in the worlds of real estate, entrepreneurship, investing, and more. To learn more, visit thefortpod.com. That's thefortpod.com. Today was a great episode uh, with my good friend, Scott Everett. Scott, somebody I look up to a lot, and he's done incredible things in the real estate industry, really from the start. Today, we start the conversation with his take on a comment he made in episode 206 that seemed to get a lot of people talking, which was fixed rate debt is for suckers. So we expand on that. We talk about his macro view of the world right now, or really specifically the, the real estate industry. We talk about regional bank issues. We talk about the type of deals and opportunities they're seeing and how they've adjusted their kind of view of underwriting right now. And then we talk a lot about what he thinks is to come and, and forward-looking thoughts Uh, And we wrap it up with a really cool conversation on how his business has changed, kind of moving from a syndication model to an institutional fund model. Scott is one of the smartest people in our industry, and I know you're going to love this episode as much as I did. Thanks for continuing to join me. My good friend, Moses Kagan, who's also been on this podcast four times, that's a record, four times, is hosting the third Reconvene UnConference in late September. This is one of my favorite events of the year. It's three days out in beautiful Santa Monica, California, and the whole event is designed for real estate deal sponsors and allocators. It's a ton of fun. I've met some incredible people. Uh, I look forward always to seeing uh, old faces, but also meeting new faces. And this year, he's been generous enough to ask me to host a breakout session on industrial. And I know if you go to their website or follow their newsletter, you'll see about a lot of the other breakouts they'll have this year. There's some great ones. You all should come. Moses has been generous enough to offer $500 off to listeners of the podcast who buy a ticket. And you can either find a link in the show notes or you can go to reconvene.com forward slash the fort. That's dot com forward slash the fort for $500 off. I can't wait to see y'all there. I've been really loving this company, Better Pitch. They help you get your deck pitch perfect. Exhausted from splitting your time between graphic designing and securing funding for your next deal, enter Better Pitch. From research to design, Better Pitch decks take the hassle out of creating your pitch deck so you can get back to building your business. Here's the cherry on top. Better Pitch is extending a risk-free offer to listeners of The Fort Podcast. They'll work with you until you're 100% satisfied, no matter how many revisions you request. Ready to get the perfect pitch? If so, go to www.betterpitch.com to book a call today. This episode is brought to you by none other than Juniper Square. In contrast to the disjointed systems used by the private markets today, Juniper Square allows GPs and their LPs to seamlessly connect and communicate across every stage of their partnerships. I was shocked when I saw that more than 1,800 GPs rely on Juniper Square to manage over 32,000 investment entities that span over 500,000 LPs and $700 billion in investor equity. Powered by industry-leading technology, Juniper Square connects the functions of a fund administrator with the day-to-day investor solutions and services every GP needs to succeed. Ford has been with Juniper, I'm pretty confident. We were one of their first 10 customers over five years. We use them to manage and communicate uh, new deals, quarterly reporting, tax documents, distributions across over 800 investors, and they have made it so easy for us. I can't imagine running our business without them. They also just launched a great new podcast called The Distribution by Juniper Square. The distribution by juniper square sits you down with some of the biggest names in commercial real estate venture capital and private equity for open and honest conversations about what's happening in the private markets you can also listen to the episode i did with them which is episode number six brandon and i had a great conversation i also really enjoyed the episode that they did with jason kern which i believe is episode number three Go check out juniper square they've been amazing for our company and i think they will be for yours too go check them out online at junipersquare.com back by popular demand and we were talking about we have the number one episode to date i have my friend scott everett joining me today welcome back to the show thanks for having me i thought a fun place to start if you haven't listened you can listen to the episode we did last year and you can get more on scott and how he built his company and what he's up to but today we'll kind of focus on the current environment but we have to start last year when we were talking i think it was about february you had said something like floating rates are for suckers fixed rate fixed rate is for suckers let's start there what have you learned
0: yeah fixed rate i just i still don't like it i said that right before the fed decided to embark on the fastest Rate hike cycle in history, which egg on my face for that. The caveat to that is fixed rate is for suckers. Floating rate is, in our opinion, the best way um, to finance deals. You have to have a very active interest rate hedging strategy. So, you know, always fine print, right?
1: Okay. You
0: know, we've got full interest rate caps in place. I would say, what have we learned since then? Heading into January of 23, SOFR curve, I'm sorry, January 22, SOFR curve through December, 2024 was one and a half percent. Fed changed their mind overnight. Fortunately for us, we had about, heading into March, we had about a 30 month average maturity on our rate caps for almost 80% of our notional, somewhere around a blend of about a 180 to 185 strike. Okay. There's a lot of things I've learned over the last twelve months, really. One thing is when when rate caps are cheap, buy large amounts of notional at the parent level, dissect it up, buy it for three to four years, and you can allocate as however you need it as to roll and sell, and you can move it around and be really well protected today, you know our rate caps sit you know we we got paid out about twenty two million dollars last year in our portfolio, and the value sits around seventy five million we probably paid about six. That has been a huge help to us. Now, the, the flip side of that is would it have been ideal timing if you had a crystal ball to rate lock you know, a five-year deal with a three-year you know, pay down and you know you, you locked it in in March of 22 at three and a half, 4%. Yeah, that would a perfect, perfect world. But we've done a lot of math on floating versus fixed and going back all the way to the 80s. 93% of the time it is more expensive to have fixed rate debt on an actual coupon basis. And that's, you know, assuming, you know, all the things with the hedging. And you lose all flexibility in the value at game when you fix your debt. And it does, it does have an extreme amount of cost to it that people are not aware of. And so anyways, fixed rates for suckers. Fix your debt, do whatever is best for you, our business plan, we move in a Y about 75%. I've got to have flexibility in my capital. And right now, every person I talk to, getting eaten alive by floating rate interest rates, eaten alive by their their rate hedges that are expiring or, or rolling off, and they're all moving to this fixed rate product because every freaking private equity group, if you talk to an institutional investor, the hottest asset class is fixed rate private credit. Because if I'm an insurance company, I can now all of a sudden lock in all these high rates for five, seven, 10 years that I've never been able to get. And some person that just got burned because they were floating panics and says, sign me up. Signs at the wrong time. Rates come down. They always do in a a cutting cycle. And you're now fixed while the recession hits and your demand falls off. So now you're stuck with high interest rates, rate cuts, and you don't ride the wave back down. So you wrote it all the way up. It's the buy high, sell low kind of, you know, all the nonsense. And so you just have to really think through your strategy on it and, and be be sensitive to it you mentioned active hedging strategy so
1: you have a large company you have lots of resources you have tons of trust in the marketplace it's e- i'm not saying it's easy but for you to say we're going to put an active hedging an active hedging strategy in place you have the resources and then you could probably think about scott when he first got started and had two properties do you think it's something that everybody can reasonably do? Or do you think you have to be a larger company to, quote unquote, have an active hedging strategy? And what is an active hedging strategy?
0: Yeah, You know, I think for the longest time, especially the last 13, 14 years, you know, an interest rate cap was something your lender just made you do. And you hated paying for it because you didn't really understand it or care about it. And in the worst scenarios, which there's a lot of them today, your lender didn't make you even buy one. And so now you're learning what they are. An active strategy would be you can buy large notional amounts of value at the parent company and you can basically allocate them across your portfolio however you'd like. Or you can buy them at the, the actual SPE entity, mm-hmm. which is just tied to your loan of value. You can buy a one-year, two-year, three-year. You can buy a one-and-a-half strike all the way up to a five-strike or, or whatever you want. to. Do. And so all it is just actively managing the cash flows and the hedges based on where you think now, the issue with you know hedging today is, it's like buying insurance in the midst of a hurricane. You are pre-funding for all of the volatility and what is already a very heavily baked in sofa curve. And so our strategy has shifted. So we have a few deals that are expiring over the last couple of months, and I have now moved from buying way in the money, call it one and a half strikes, with a three-year term or something like that, I'm now buying one-year rolling caps, and I'm getting my lender to move me up to a five strike. So I'm basically now sitting even with SOFR, and I'm refusing to pay these hedging strategies, you know, all this cash for, you know, volatility premium essentially. And so that's that's what we're, you know, we believe we've studied a lot, you know, 50 years of this generally rate cuts happen eight to 12 months after they pause we all kind of believe they're going to pause now would be the wrong time to go throw all this good money after bad.
1: can you explain just in layman's term what one and a half strikes to five strike mean
0: it just means so basically so okay. if you buy a one and a half strike that means you are protected at anything above one and a half percent on sofa so if your debt is spread at 300 and you buy one one and a half strike your max note rate would be four and a half percent yeah if you buy it at a five you know, you got a lot of room to run, but it's a lot cheaper, obviously, to buy. Right now, you know, everyone's starting to figure out, well, hold on. I didn't know I had to escrow for these cap rate replacements. I didn't know that my, my, it's maturing at the end of this year. And I didn't realize instead of being a hundred grand, like it was my budget, it's $2 million. It is, it is freaking the industry out as it should by the way, this is exactly what Powell wanted. And so if you weren't paying attention and if you weren't prepared for this, it's going to cause some pretty, in my opinion, some pretty spectacular implosions in the industry.
1: I was going to get to this question, but you kind of just led right into it. Do you think that this is what will cause there to be deal flow and multifamily is just poor capital structures? Or do you think it'll be fundamentally driven because tenants aren't paying rent or rents are going down or will it be a combination of both?
0: I I think we've talked about it, but fundamentally, you know, we're still seeing very good demand in our industrial and in our apartments. You know, I'd say it's it's definitely bifurcating, you know, Austin, Raleigh, Phoenix, sluggish rent growth, very tech concentrated. Atlanta, Florida, Texas generally, very healthy demand, still seeing pretty good returns. And I'd say... The supply pipeline, you know, you probably saw yesterday, Fort Worth permits are down 80%, right? So there's the bullwhip of we had a little oversupply, now you can't get financing, everything's filling up, and there will be no inventory to come out to kind of fill this demand. So rents will gen- generally probably come back up. I don't think it's gonna be fundamental. I think people have lost understanding of how difficult this stuff is to operate. It's not industrial with concrete walls and you know, you get good tenants. You are living, breathing <laughs> machine of hundreds of residents. You know, you got all these people that have different demands and they have different options every six to 12 months. And, you know, there's a new shiny building every time you turn around that you can go lease in. And so, if you're not executing perfectly at all stages, as you're starting to get in this oversupply and we start to see unemployment start to clip up in a recession, the weak operators are going to get wiped out. They're also starting to deal with, you know, 30 to 40% insurance premium increases. You got real estate taxes. Someone forgot to tell the central appraisal district we're entering a recession. <laughs> you know, our tax increases were like 30 plus percent. And so, you know, right now we've got a pretty poor, we've got a pretty bad stagflation environment, really, even though our our rents were up about 11, 12%. You know, it's a break even. And yeah. so you really got to know what you're doing to kind of find that extra value. And so I, I think it's a combination of poor operations, you know, exposure to a lot of bad expense management, and ultimately the credit system is going to just spit you out after it chewed you up. So I think a lot of people got their head in the sand, but I've got a lot of conversations behind the scenes with a lot of big operators, big owners, whoever you want to talk to, people are scared and people are starting to have their come to Jesus moment of this isn't going to be as easy as like. Call some capital and like ride the wave it's, it's some serious decisions to make
1: well that set the stage perfectly for we can talk about capital markets and then you've you know we've talked offline you think we're i think we all can agree we're heading into a recession but you kind of set up maybe you're more bearish than others so i can lay it up however you want do we want to talk about capital markets and just like what you're seeing today and then we can talk about wrap that up with like how the macro is influencing that
0: yeah I mean, we talked about it like first off, transactions are, you know, down eighty percent in our industry. Not shocking, right? You've had almost equal value destruction to the GFC in our industry. I don't think people are really paying attention to that. You know, the, the GFC from start to finish in multifamily had about forty-one to forty-three percent, depending of of peak value to to, to floor. We're kind of at thirty-five percent right now. Because, you know, cap rates were higher. So it went from six to eight. Today it went from, you know, maybe three to five. And so as it gets tighter and more compressed, it's a larger percentage. So we've we've absorbed some pretty serious impacts. The bigger issue is the debt yields in this environment. You know, everyone kind of got four and a half kind of intro debt yields. They move them to stabilize them to a six and they had some takeout waiting. You can't get it for anything less than eight. And so I just think there's a lot of. Just fundamental credit issues in the in the environment, but from like a macro level, you know, my money manager hates me because we just, you know, I'm looking at S and P at 4,100. You know, it, it just doesn't make sense to me. So I just I'm 98 percent cash and bonds right now. I can get five and a half percent in rolling one month treasuries. I feel like there's just a big disconnect between like what market expectations are and what the reality is behind the scenes because. Everybody I talk to is getting BOVs and trying to understand what their exit scenarios look like. And, you know, we get called on a lot of different deals to, you know, hey, just toss in an offer. You know, they've they've come to they've come to the realization it's not worth what they what they pay, but they're hoping they can get some value. And it's not worth the note. I mean, we looked at, you know, you probably saw the Houston stuff that kind of imploded after oh, yeah. like 12 months. And that's 2,400 units. The guy had no idea what he's doing. Never should have been in the business. And and those are tough assets, but you know, 12 months is that's a rapid start to finish to throw back the keys. But there's a lot of groups behind the scenes, kind of going, hey, you know, I understand it's not worth the debt, but I don't, you know, I'm burning 200 grand a month right now. And so, you know, six months ago it was maybe I'll get my equity. Now it's maybe I will get half my equity. Maybe I don't get any equity, but I'm not willing to put good money after bad anymore. And so we're starting to kind of hear that deal flow. Starts to pick up. The problem is the lenders now have to get involved. And until they have their moment, which is coming to figure out how much I'm willing to take a haircut on, you're not gonna be able to see the transaction volume pick up again, but it'll come.
1: Is, is it mainly like syndicated equity deals where they're saying we're not gonna do it or even the big institutional LPs are saying, let it go?
0: I think everybody is, is trying to figure out cash management right now. So yeah. if, you're, if you're in the fund business, you're saying what vintage of the fund is it? What's the liquidity of the fund? And what is, you know, so we bought a deal from a, a group that had a large it was a part of a large group fund vehicle, and it was the only one that made any sense to us on a value because they'd already exited billions of dollars and basically said, "We just want out of this thing. We don't want to feed it and dilute returns. Just clear us out, and we don't care." And so those are the ones that I think will start to are transacting more and more. The syndicators can't transact. You know they they are. Most likely, unless they've moved around somewhere between forty percent, you know, they probably paid a cap rate that is not going to be able to clear, you know, equity. so they're gonna have to get equity sign off to sell, they're gonna have to get lender sign-off possibly to sell. Everyone's kind of just, you know, waiting around to to figure out which one breaks first. I can tell you that we all forget that this has really been a seven to eight month kind of reality. They started this kind of rate hike cycle, you know, in March, but I'd say like it wasn't apparent until August for most people that, okay, this is serious. and i I did not do very good at, at risk management. and you know our market rents are down six percent. You know, people don't really talk about that. Demand is there. You could fill up, but if you had Proforma you know four percent, five percent, or you plugged you know some co-star you know organic rent growth trend into your model, you are way upside down. And fortunately for us, you know we're we're big on untrended rents during the value program. And so we're hitting right at you know about 100 and 102, 103 percent. It's been a slug of pro forma rent growth, but we need you know we need we need 115, 120 with the expense growth we're seeing. So we're we're grinding it out. But you know, I, I like to think we're pretty good operators. If we're sh- we're having a tough time getting the getting the occupancy and getting the leases, we're looking around at other T twelves and rent rolls saying, you know you don't have a shot and your debt matures at the end of the year and you got to buy a rate cap for two million dollars. Where's that money coming from, and, and who's gonna who's gonna fund the capital call to pay down the note so that you can either refinance or extend? And you know, it's not there.
1: What's slowing down the rent growth? Is it that we grew so much and now we're only growing three percent off the tops, or is there other things that so have slowed it down?
0: There's there's nothing really that's. I mean, look, there's there's obviously massive amounts of supply that everyone kind of was aware of, and so so that's that's obvious. Yeah. Then there's you know, I think some, some rebound after COVID that, you know, maybe got out ahead of itself. So it's kind of coming back down to nor- normality. You know, no one also talks about the fact that I think rent growth got accelerated in COVID because people couldn't evict. Yeah. And so you artificially inflated occupancies to give pricing power to the landlords. And now that that's working its way back to normality, you're looking up going, Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm back to 91% occupied. I thought it was 95, but really, you know, I've got 10%, you know, and, in, and, in accounts receivable. And so your pricing power starts to come back down. And so now you're competing with all your other groups that are lowering. So our rents, our rents for basically the last 12 months, our market rents have come down about 6% year over year. Our effective rents have grown about 12%. So there's a difference, right? There's market rent does this or this, but you're effective if you know what you're doing and you buy right, you should always be able to achieve your pro forma without market rent growth. And, but I, you know, I've seen some models they need market rent growth. And that's, that was when things were good. And so, you know, we'll we'll see how it shakes out.
1: Okay, we, we, we touched on, you know, just what's happening to equity and debt in deals that are already existing. Let's just talk about conversations that you're having with equity and lenders on what the next 12, 24 months looks like and how are you thinking about it?
0: Yeah, you know, for us, the best thing we ever did was, you know, in June of 21, Walked into my CEO's office and said, "If we don't want it for ten years, I want it gone by the end of the year." And we embarked on a you know eleven thousand unit exit over the next seven months. At, at what cap? Just a to... three six to three seven. After okay. we'd already renovated everything. Yep. So these were you know three x gross plus returns to the equity. Felt like you know you'd be just an absolute idiot not to take it. Yep. The other thing we did was we refinanced. So that would have been about. Real uh,
1: quick, why did you walk in in June of 21
0: and say that? What, because what? paper rocks images were selling for $50 million. Okay. It was like, <laughs> it, was, you know, it was like, dude, we got to like, today's the day, you know, we're cashing out. Okay, fair enough. And and you know, it was a tough decision because everyone's calling for 20% organic rent growth the next 12 months. So if you just held it, that's 30, 40% of why. But we've got a very, we've said it for years. Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. And you know we debated it internally, the equity, everyone wants to run all these fancy analysis and net present value and, and forecasted future cash flows. There is the most important thing to do is, what is, what, is the, um, what is the return on implied equity? Not necessarily can I take my equity from a two to two and a half over the next five years. Yeah. What is it on implied equity? I've got all this cash tied up. What can I do with that cash after I sell to make another 10 15 20%. And that was what we decided to do. Dump yeah. it all. So we moved our average portfolio and it was mostly older stuff too. Because the older stuff always has a, always blows out the cap rate more than the newer stuff. They just lose you lose the liquidity in a in a recession. And so thank God for that we sold, you know, 40 something deals 11,000 units. We refinanced another 15 to 20 in in early Q1 22. That was the best thing we did because at the time we refinanced we bought a bunch of extra rate caps so we kind of hedged our our additional our new debt and it gave us a long runway on anything that we still owned in terms of maturity you know 90 plus percent of all foreclosures in the gfc were due to maturity defaults and so you just got to really really manage that runway of maturity and so that was what we did we we went out put 10-year floating rate debt with hedges on and then there was the remaining stuff, and we bought some stuff in you know twenty two that you know I'd say my very, very worst deals got probably five step kids that are driving me crazy, and you know, three of them are the nicest deals we own, but they were priced like a bond because they were you know flight to quality, super well located, you know and and you had to pay up to get that and yep. so we all know what bonds did. I mean, that's kind of what's happened you've you've lost pricing power, you've had issues with expansion of cap rates, kind of diluting value. And so those couple deals are going to be, you know, my problem children for a little while, but we've got a plan in place and, you know, rents are picking up. One of them happens to be in Fort Worth. Fort Worth has caught fire the last three months. I don't know if you guys have seen anything, but supply and permits just completely fell off a cliff, absorption caught up. And I'd say the last three months, you know, Fort Worth has has, has gone bonkers in terms of rents and occupancy, which has been really nice. I didn't know that,
1: but that's good to hear. Yeah. Because Dallas okay. has had had it for so It's damn had long. it for a
0: while, but it's it's good.
1: Okay, when when we first started, or when we t- when we chatted in February, you were either closing your first fund, or um, that you were kind of moving from a deal by deal syndication to a fund. I, I just in talking to you, and even as far as we've gone in this conversation, you're clearly in tune with like what is going to happen going forward, what's equity debt thinking. You're about to raise your second fund with all that we've already talked about, what is capital gonna look like coming back in? What are they saying they wanna see? Or do you think it's another 12 months of sit and wait before action starts
0: happening? It is currently the worst fundraising environment in 20 years of tracking for, for PitchBook. So they track Q1 closings, they track all the fund volumes for private equity real estate. The, the, for, for the last 20 years, you've never failed to get above 450 fund closings in a year, and they're tracking right now to less than 200. Wow! You raised about 12 billion dollars in Q1 of like this year. We raised 55 billion dollars last year, and you generally are going to it. the The math is just it goes on and on, and it's it's all about, you know, everyone talks about this magical liquidity bucket. Well, first off, it's sitting with Blackstone, so. You know, decide what they're going to do. Second off, the magical liquidity is a complete falsity. Like, there's no liquidity in the system. Talk to the biggest, you know, we talk to all the the big boys, right? Like New York State Common, Texas Teachers, you, Timco, whoever you want to talk to, and all the way to South Korea, Middle East, various European markets. Everyone has been crushed by denominator effect which is what you'll hear over and over again which is which is essentially all of this runs on portfolio allocation models right if you're managing 500 billion dollars you are beholden to what is approved by your board and it might say I can allocate 10% of my dollars to private equity real estate and across that I want to have 50 different strategies with you know all these different managers whatever that 10% is fine when the market is sitting at forty, six hundred on the SP and your bond portfolio was sitting at par when you bought it at, you know, one and a half 10-year, all of that collapsed 20%. So now my 50 plus percent of my liquid kind of, you know, public equity, public credit vehicles, that has gone my that has gone way down. Mm. So it's screwed up all my allocations. So all this private equity allocation went from 10 to 13, 14%. On the other side of it, All my exits that were planned in 22 and 23 that I was planning to use to fund my commitments, all of that went away. Mm. And so it's compounding. You got one falling off, now you're over allocated. You've already allocated those dollars because you're always trying to catch up on what you anticipate to recycle. So then you look up and you're like, holy shit, I am (laughs) billions of dollars over allocated to all these strategies. So what they tell you is, don't call me, basically. We'll have a meeting, we'll talk. If if we get a whim to say, you know, hmm, we really want to take an opportunistic approach right now. Well, guess what? Private credit looks a hell of a lot better than levered 15 returns right now in, you know, multifamily or industrial. Yep. And so you'd say, okay, well, I'll just give it to KKR. I know I won't lose my job. I know they'll do what they're supposed to. And they're going to generate, you know, 14, 16% nets right now on, you know, first lien position credit. And so if you're an equity fundraiser right now, it's it's literally the worst environment probably before the GFC. I'd say, you know, we have a we have a person that sits in Connecticut in New York and, you know, runs fundraising for us. He's done it for 25 years. So this is by far worse than the GFC. The GFC was great because it was Goldilocks until the very end. And then it was just like, holy boom, it's all over. And then you pick up your pieces and you say, What's what are we going to do? Well, I'll go do an opportunistic vehicle, I'll go do special situations, I'll go do whatever, but at least there was a path forward to raise money and transact. Right now, we have absolutely nowhere to go. We sit with, you can buy five and a half percent, one month rolling T-bills, well, that's nice, so if I'm a pension fund, I'll just put more into that because that, I just need to hit a seven basically to match my allocation or my, my liabilities. But if I want a little extra juice, I'll go do private credit or whatever else is out there. So, there's just no place right now for a value add or an opportunistic equity. Because if I say, hey, I'm going to raise an opportunistic vehicle, what opportunities are you seeing? Well, you know, nothing yet because no one can sell anything because they're not worth the debt usually. Okay, well, call me when you can actually do something. And then you just get kicked down the curve. So, it's like, it's that constant, you know, fundraising issue. And that's going on everywhere. And the liquidity is everyone says, you know, well, this group raised $7 billion. Well, yeah, but that was on commitments that, the system, you know, they're calling saying, hey, I'm not ready to fund. Maybe wait a little bit. Let's be measured. I got a, I got a lot of issues. And if your largest LP calls you and tells you that, you kind of slow it down a little bit.
1: When we were at that YPO deal, you said everybody that's raising money is raising money on the notion that there's all these opportunities. And then the manager told you, yeah, and every fund that we're already in is coming and saying there's no opportunity. Yeah. So which one is it?
0: Yeah, I, and it was a good, it was a good point, you know, large pension fund, you know, tells me, we go through the whole system, whole spiel about what we're getting ready for and why we were fundraising. And he says, well, what are you doing? And and I said, you know, this is what we're expecting. He goes, well, that's great. But everybody that, you know, wants my money essentially says that, right? Like, oh, I'm raising this money for this great opportunity, but then everyone that has my money is saying, well, we can't find the opportunities. And yeah. so it's basically, it's reality, right? Like there aren't anything that's that exciting. We got a deal that was foreclosed on that we couldn't even make work. You know, it was a it was a foreclosure. The basis was seventy, the debt was fifty, and we were at thirty seven, and so we still couldn't even get that to work. But
1: assuming that there was a deal today, what would the debt markets be telling you?
0: Well, you have two options: you either go really low leverage and go agency, but you know, what's
1: that like fifty fifty five?
0: You could probably it depends on what you're buying. I mean, if you're buying kind of like we're we've contracted on a couple of deals that we're selling. At a mind-boggling mind-boggling cap rate, it's like a four-six or something, and it, that is, you know, I can understand why they're doing it. You know, for all the reasons that we believe in it, it's tough in the credit environment today when you need an eight debt yield to just get financing, yep. and so that basically points you to fifty percent leverage, yeah, maybe fifty-five, and so you're at fifty-five percent leverage. You are maybe doing a fixed loan at six percent, so you know you're buying a four and a half cap six, you're half leverage, maybe you get a squeak out a little bit. If you want some higher octane stuff, you know, it's 375 to, if you're a good borrower, I think, and if you're a bad borrower, it's probably 450, 475. Got so, and that's floating 5%, you're 10%. I mean, it just doesn't make any damn sense.
1: Okay. If you kind of described rates might be at the top and not you, but Powell has said the markets kind of has a consensus. We're here. So then you said within eight to 12 months, usually it starts dropping, which I guess could be a bullish signal or it's dropping because we're in free fall. We've kind of gotten to a year and yeah, there's been a lot of tech jobs lost and, and you kind of made the comment, what'd you say? You just said, people don't really have come to grips with how much value destruction has actually occurred. Then you said in 08, it was like amazing and then we fell off a cliff and we just kind of knew where we are. We're just kind of in purgatory right Mm -hmm. now so now i'm going to take it back to very bearish what what causes things from your opinion and we can leave it to real estate but you can take whichever to start getting much worse just kind of starting to bleed out these dead animals and just let it continue to flush out or do you think it's like a a fall or just a steady decline
0: yeah i mean look you know it's like
1: We've and I'm holding you to this answer. That's no, fine. Kidding. That's you, why because
0: you can predict the future. That's that's why I come on here so that everyone on Twitter can yell at me a year <laughs> later. Uh, I love you. Yeah. And so, yeah, look, if we have a crystal ball, which we do not, and and take this for what it's worth, we have to make decisions based on all of our research and what we believe will happen. And so this is this is what we believe. But you know, I'd say. Peeling back the credit layer, you know, generally the system breaks after you get real rates above one, 1%. one okay. percent. We sit at two today. We sit at two today with 2x the debt we did in 08. In, in and we sit 50% higher than we were in 19. When, if you recall, two and a half percent broke the system. They oh. had to cut rates. And this is prior to COVID. We were already entering recession, but it took, they did it for two and a half years. So they did it. 25 every quarter, all the way up. Generally, the system breaks after 250 to 300 bips of rate movement. We've gone 500, obviously. It happens so fast, so rapidly. People haven't even absorbed in, in reality what it means, but you're starting to see the cracks show. You're starting to see revisions to the employment forecast. You're starting to see You know, I I highlighted on LinkedIn the Sluice survey, which generally is 100% prediction rate. What is Um, the
1: Sluice survey? It's just
0: a senior lending officer survey. You have Um, to
1: be really cool to be reading Sluice surveys, uh, by the way. If it's not in your regular reading
0: material, you need to to get with it. You just need to nerd out on some Sluice. But look, it's really good. And I'd say it's actually probably, in our opinion, not bearish enough. It's gone very negative. And historically, when it goes this point, it's 100% hit rate for recession. We... Have some pretty good insight into talking to regional lenders. We <laughs> heading into March, <laughs> we had 26 lenders for our subline lined up competing
1: for your fund um,
0: for our fund 200 million dollar subline March um, of 2022
1: or March of this year? This year, okay,
0: heading into March. So we were supposed to be closing in mid April on fund two, fund two subline 750 fund two to 250 million dollar subline. A subline is a subscription line. That basically allows me like a line of credit against our fund commitments so that I don't have to always, when I'm closing, I don't have to call the capital down and do all this kind of headache for the investors. I just use my sub line to smooth everything out. I have 180 days. I call it all back and pay it off. So it's a very, very like safe loan because it's guaranteed by requirement to fund from our investors. So as easy as a layup as you get, 26 lenders come April. It was 15, come April, mid-April, down to one. Every single one of them pulled out. Now, the market pretends like nothing's happened in the regional banking system, but you've had three of the largest, three of the top four largest bank failures in history, back to back to back. And we're just kind of sitting here like, oh, well, it's just bad risk management. Well, it's not bad risk management. It's, it's things break when you go from zero to five percent so for in 12 months. They broke because they bought mortgage-backed securities and long-term dated treasuries. They are actually required by the bank regulators to own these securities. Now, they should have done a little bit better hedging strategy. Yes. Silicon Valley Bank probably should have done a better job on their hold to maturity accounting and all their different hedges. But First Republic was a damn good bank. And We did a lot of stuff with them. We talked to them on a lot of stuff. We even talked to Silicon on Subline. We knew all these players. They were not like just throwing money out. They did a lot of pretty intelligent things. And this whole system has collapsed. It's made JPM and Bank of America bigger and better. But generally what it means to us is the regional banking system is completely frozen. If I can't get one person to show up for a Subline, which is the safest, easiest loan to make, you know i feel like you know it's a pretty it's in a pretty bad spot
1: and real quick are they are they making that decision more as a cover your ass we'd rather do nothing yes. and be wrong than do something and be wrong well
0: because you just don't know what headline and earnings is going to set yeah. off a run and so all you're doing is you've now got the regulars just down your throat with every detail of your accounting and so the last thing they want to do right now is is go out and try to try to drum up new business it's all about batting down the hatches protect protect the moat and and you know survive. Okay. And that generally is going to lead to a pretty significant credit crunch. You know, the other thing is like people aren't talking about you know, we talk about this QT and SOFR and rate rise and all that fun stuff, but the the, the only reason we survived kind of that March timeline when everything started getting wonky in April, the the te- Treasury general account pumped like a trillion dollars into the liquidity system, kind of very quietly. <laughs> Now that's very different from Fed balance sheet. The TGA is basically where you deposit all income for the bank for the for the entire government. Well, they had a huge overflow from COVID, and as they started QTing and taking bonds, you know, hundred billion a month, off the balance sheet from the Fed, well, the TGA started kind of pumping in liquidity in little in little pocket areas that were having distress. They open up the repo lines basically. If you need to dump all your bonds on here, go ahead. We'll do it on the Fed's line. So the repo lines are wide open those things skyrocketed. Then you have the TGA account pumped about a you know, trillion dollars of liquidity. It's now down to like nothing. So it's got no more liquidity left. Then the Fed reversed QT in March and April of this year when the regional banking system hit. They pumped another $400 billion, basically reversing 12 months of QT overnight. Now they've caught back up again. They're working it through the system, but it's all these little mechanisms. It's like, it's like the whole airplane's falling apart and you just keep duct taping everything. And so I think I, I think with credit evaporating, that will be the final straw. I mean, you saw the surge in bankruptcies over the weekend, mostly in corporate banking, because people can't either service the debt or refinance. and so they're just throwing in the keys. That will start to work its way out. You know, housing is always the first to go. It's, it's the first wave. It's most of people's net worth. So you know, it, it's rates are going to move, re- Refinances, people have to move. They can't afford a home. So they start doing all these funky things. It's all working. It's through the system. It just takes time. You know, it, it was a 05 problem for the GFC when people started waking up to the fact that mortgages might have not as good a credit as people expected. Then it was like 06 was like, hey, pay attention. We have some serious issues. And then it was like 07 was was when it really shit hit the fan. But still, the market held on until that very moment. And that's when they cut rates. And that's when everything dive bombed. And that's when unemployment skyrockets. That cycle plays out over and over and over all the way back to the 30s. I mean, it's not, I I can't, I'm dumbfounded when everyone sits there and goes, well, the consumer's strong and unemployment is strong. They're always strong. They are always the strongest before it ends. I don't know why that's even an indicator anybody points to, it's like, it's just lip service. So you gotta pay attention to the leading economic indicators, the SLU surveys, the PMI index, which generally is gonna precede CPI. You know, CPI is being held up by inflation on shelter, which is just totally bogus. It's twelve month, fifteen month lag. We're in a deflationary environment. We're in a we're in a a, really a stagflation environment for assets. And you know, I think the last shoe to drop will be we'll start to see unemployment tick up, and and that will be the moment where the Fed says, "Oh shit!" And you know, people are holding on to hope because they think that that's a bullish signal. Generally, last eight recessions, it's a very bearish signal because. Interest rates and input, you can fix it. Demand is not, you, you don't know what to do. And that's when things start to really get wonky.
1: And I think to hit 6% unemployment, which is where Powell started, we're still like four, four and a half million jobs away from yeah. that need to be lost before we even get close to that. And I think well, last month we added, what,
0: 250,000 jobs? Yes, but revised back to 120. So What's keep, that mean? They keep going back after they actually f- figure out the data, and oh. thirty days later, revising everything. and in, in the last three months, they've gone back and revised them almost fifty percent downward. And no one, no one talks about it. It's like, oh yeah, but the it's on the BLS website, revision, revision, revision. And you know, it's 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 just stuff that you know. I think you got to kind of geek out a little bit on and, and really dig and pay attention to because ninety nine percent of data and and facts are just seem to be incorrect right now. I think
1: you just talked about him, but if you had to sum that up, and you just said like the talking about the consumer is not the the indicator you should be watching. What does Scott Everett look at? What data points matter to you the most?
0: Yeah, after my wife's credit card bill, I'd say it's. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say it's. You know, look, it's all portfolio stuff for us, right? Like, I'm all for me. Every day, it's just. But even macro, macro. Like, okay. You could
1: you could do it at, at your property level, but at the macro level. When you get up, you read the paper, you care about what's going on.
0: Yeah, I think everything revolves around credit. We're a credit society. So all I wanna know is what, we do a weekly index tracker internally, just tracking all the macro data I care about. We sift through all the REIT returns, so we wanna know what are the REITs seeing every day um, and what are they preparing for on their credit side. I'd say we're tracking corporate bond spreads are the most important. We track those probably day to day. You'll get your first kind of glimpse into recession. If the, you know, you don't want to pay attention to triple A's, triple A's are just, you know, it's like Apple bond, Apple spreads are always gonna be good. You want to pay attention to the triple B's. The triple B's generally reflect kind of, they mirror cap rates to an extent. And so in a recession, those spreads will start to expand pretty quickly. So you want to watch that you know obviously really paying attention right now to to CPI headline and then i'd say um, you know i we have a we have a kind of tracker of all things consumer unemployment retail you might have seen today you know retail spending came in way below consensus and so we're really just paying attention to the various reports and and trying to figure out you know what does it all mean it it's usually just like as fast as some of this stuff goes up It's usually just as slow and boring until one day it's not, and you'll just start to get little tidbits of data that comes out. And so that's kind of what we we monitor.
1: Yeah, we had a guy on here last week, Gabe, and he was going through his investing principles. And the second one that he's learned after 20 years of Wall Street is like, never fight the Fed. And he just brought up a good point. He's like, if you had just listened to Powell this entire cycle, he told you exactly what he was going to do. Yeah,
0: but- but Powell came out in December and said is transitory, and we have absolutely no intention of raising rates. And you know, what people? It, it, I was I was watching CNBC the probably two or three weeks ago, and this kind of very high horse lady is bashing some some private equity real you know investor people, saying you know, what do you you know you expect free money forever? You just you 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 guys just leverage up and try to go for big returns and make all this money. And what people fail to realize is that we we serve a purpose. Private equity serves a purpose. Obligations that we are the predominant amount of capital in this in this world has some sort of massive liability to either a pension system, which is employees and teachers, et cetera, hospital workers, firemen. And they generally have, you know, if they have $100 billion, they've got six to 7% that they must distribute to cover all their liabilities and overhead, whether it's the medical system, Mayo Clinic, whoever, Kaiser Permanente, all these groups have these massive balance sheets, but they have to figure out ways to get six to 7% into the hands of their employees, you know, cancer research, whatever it may be. So when everyone goes, you know, well, you just kept buying deals and you kept investing when you knew rates were low and that probably meant you know things were frothy. Well, the Fed guided us to a 1% SOFR curve through 2024. Mm. So in 21 and 22, inflation's running 10, 12, 14%. The Fed is saying, right now we're fighting COVID. We are prepared to stay lower for longer. If you're the pension system that has to pay out 7% or you're the cancer research system that has to fund these liabilities, you have to make a day-to-day decision on where to put your capital. And so we as PEGPs have to go out and produce the best deal flow for the investment to produce returns that help these people hit their obligations to their constituents. Yep. And so what we're doing is saying, well, if you just do nothing at the time, you are in a 1% T-bill and you are getting 10% inflation. So all of your program is completely upside down and destroyed. And so that's why they go, okay, well, I'm going to load up on private equity real estate. I'm going to load up over here on growth equity over here, VC, capital, whatever. It creates chaos. But the problem is the Fed never once until March gave an indication that we are going for zero to 5% to conquer inflation. Now, if you, if you had felt that, maybe in June of 21, you should have said, hey, inflation is out of control. Just a heads up: We are probably going to try to beat inflation by 2024, and generally, inflation beating means I need to get so far above the core sticky inflation, which right now sits at four and a half percent. It was seven and a half, and so then it's a whole different ballgame. Now you're saying, "Well, hold on, I got a fair, you know, different track." He never said that until March, and that's the issue: is you made all these decisions for the moment in time of 22 that really was the worst case scenario for retirees and for the pension and and all these, you know, cancer and, and et cetera systems. And they totally got blindsided. Chapter
1: one of S2, we can call the, the, you know, you getting started to call it the end of the first cycle, legendary run, very inspiring. Now we're at the end of cycle one. You've grown up, you've learned a lot more, you got more resources. And now we've talked about kind of what the world might be brewing. What is like let's just call it Chapter Two going to look like for us two same type of deals? are you doing things different? What's the strategy going forward?
0: Yeah, you know I, I I keep telling my team like this is the most exciting time for us. There's nothing fun about competing for a three cap deal <laughs> that might make a fifteen and having to put up five million dollars hard day one and waive all due diligence like. That's not a good environment to buy in. That's a great environment to sell in. Yeah. Not a great environment to buy in. The difference is now we have experience. Now we have a track record. Now we have a balance sheet and I'm still 34. I feel like I've got some good <laughs> runway. <laughs> at you know? least
1: at least 10 more years. Yeah,
0: at least. And so I look at it like, you know, it's been a ton of fun, but we really feel like we're just getting started. Yeah. And that was a big way. That was a big reason that, you know, in 21, late 21, 22, we went into the fun route and the institutional route. You know, we're now an RIA, which just blows my mind the amount of regulation around that. You know, I have to copy my archive system on every text message around work. <laughs> and so, like, there's just all this silliness, but it's part of growing up. And, you know, we had a great year. We had a great fun run of doing, you know, 45,000 units across. The last eleven years and doing all these syndications, but you know, forty percent of that was with Pennybacker, which was awesome because they're basically, you know, an institutional fund manager. That you know, at the beginning when we first got involved, they were really just an SMA, part of the Emerging Manager Program for Texas Teacher Pension Fund. So from the very beginning, we had to kind of learn how to be institutional in our reporting and our underwriting and our operations, and so that was a huge growth curve for us, for us early on. Now our huge growth curve is, I'm having to learn, you know, how to answer to all of these institutional capital into our own very fund vehicles. The beauty of that capital is it's very sticky once you have it. You know, they do not want to do a lot of work on new managers, but once you get them in, they're a repeat as long as you aren't just terrible at your job. And so our our goal is, you know, fund two will be somewhere between seven and eight hundred million. You know we will continue to kind of run our value add and opportunity vehicles we would love to one day you know in the near future get into credit we have flexibility in fund two to buy credits we can do rescue capital we can do development we can do you know credit investing as long as the returns kind of yield what our fund metrics are and so we want to truly kind of institutionalize into a a true real estate private equity shop you know I, i'm not silly enough to think that multifamily would be you know be the favorite asset class for the next 50 years we will have to figure out how to diversify at some point but for the time being we really think you know over the next 5 to 7 years capital and experience will be in vogue again it will be cool to be patient and be methodical and be a good operating partner and and that's what we're hearing from capital is now you know before they like the allocator you know investor which would just kind of blend and diversify with things kind of starting with shit hitting the fan a little bit. They want sector-specific GP-led operator models, and they want experts. I want to know that if you're going to get in a hairy deal and you have my money, you are the best person to be in that deal. You're not just kind of making little mini bets everywhere to kind of blend out a diversified portfolio because things are going to get tough. I mean, if you remember you know, all the way up until 2016, we were buying deals that were still you know, 30, 40% down units, maybe a fire building that happened or some sketchy insurance claim. We don't know, but... <laughs>
1: <laughs> that but may or may not have been yeah, a real situation. Yeah,
0: and, and, you know, so there's all these opportunities that come up with, you know, really heavy lifts, and that's exciting. And that will happen again. We're already seeing it. Like, if you have zero cash flow or worse, you have massive negative cash flow, this, What what always starts to happen is you start to cannibalize your units if you're a poor operator and you're poorly capitalized. What's that mean? That just means, unit? that means, you know, I've got one person that's moving into this three bedroom okay. and I've got a vacant one bed. Well, I don't have the cash flow right now, but I really need this person to move in so that I can have the cash flow. Mm. So, in the interim, it's always in the interim, I'm going to take <laughs> all of this appliance sets and I'm going to take maybe even an AC condenser and I'm going to put it over here and get this ready so that I can get someone to move in and get cash. And once I get cash flow again, I'll go refurbish this one. Mm. Well, generally it doesn't ever go that way. This one starts to get cannibalized. Now you can't lease it. Next person moves out. Now you start cannibalizing again. Then all of a sudden you look up, you have 25% of your units are down or in some not sort of non-make rate. And that's usually the last shoe to drop where you're just like, I got no way out. I got no way out.
1: All right, I have a lot of questions. You said permits are down 80% in Fort Worth but the question's more broad. Like when I think about industrial, you know, when a a lot of people are like, there's more industrial being built than ever before. I'm like, yeah, that's class A big box. It has nothing to do with my 10,000 foot tenant in a class B. Yeah. But I don't think it's that simple and multi. If you build a gazillion class A units, it impacts the class B market pretty significantly. So the question really is like, with permits dropping, construction going down. I know there's a lot of units still to be delivered under, but how do you think about both of those asset classes and how do they work together? And like, what will that look like going forward?
0: Yeah, I, uh, so I kind of, so your question really is around just supply of, you know, A, B, C, how is it yeah, all kind Yeah, the of, more
1: A that comes on, yeah. how does that impact B? And then as yeah. A drops off, how does that impact B?
0: So, you know, let's take recession out of it because that's an unknown. Generally, the killer of growth markets that we operate in is supply. Okay. You know, if you're in Dallas, that's great. You're gonna have 100,000 jobs. That's roughly 30,000 new apartments needed. You have two thirds go to housing, one third go to renter. So that demand has been very strong. The problem is, you know, if you start building, you know, we have 700,000 units in Dallas. So if you start getting close to like Austin numbers, Austin's running around 12 to 14% of existing inventory under construction. That'd be like 100,000 80 to 100,000 units. That would be a serious issue, right? Like yeah. you got 30,000 people and you got that will crush rents. And that's okay. what you're seeing in Austin, that's what you're seeing in Phoenix. Phoenix rents are down, you know, in our math about 12%, marked from peak to start and they're they're not seeing we're not seeing any signs of them slowing down. Austin, same thing, worst housing market in the country really probably kind of a similar 15% drop from peak. The problem is there's no way to, it's all that. the problem is, is as all this inventory delivers, I have to fill up and you have different incentives at the top end. The developer has a guarantee, usually some sort of recourse involved. They are very motivated to fill up this property. They tend to have some sort of stabilized occupancy release on their on their guarantee. And then they will dump it and get out of the $50 million note that they're guaranteeing. They damn to be the equity, damn be the returns. Yeah. So they will offer one, two, three months free rent, whatever they need to do. They will lower rents. That will start to. Usually, you're going to only have a yeah, yeah, six to eight hundred dollars spread, A, B, to C, right? So if they're giving away two, three months, that might be two, three grand a month in rent. You average that out over across, it starts to eat into what your top end of B rents are, and so it all starts to slide downhill, and so it will have a pretty massive effect, you know. The flip side of that is right now single family is more expensive than it's ever been in terms of you know price to rent with 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 rates where they are. So buyers of single family are pretty much cut out of the market. So they have to rent. They generally are going to rent in that kind of eighty percent AMI to one hundred twenty percent AMI. That's not where the new deliveries are. So as long as you're in a market where like Dallas building right at three four percent, thirty five to forty thousand units on under inventory. We continue to absorb 30,000 units because jobs are really strong here still. And you know that will continue to, to kind of work itself out. The flip side is the, the inventory under permit is starting to drop off dramatically. Now that's a very good thing for us. That's why we like existing assets. You know, Inflation brought your cost up too much. Rents are falling on the market rent level and your credit is incredibly difficult to find and expensive. So it's really hard to pencil development so it's a bullwhip. It's, you know, it all fills up and now there's nothing in the back end. That's when rents start to skyrocket, then developers get active again. But for the DFW, Atlanta, Charlotte's of the world or Florida's, you're seeing a very healthy demand supply. And so that's, that's really good to see. I think the Phoenix's, Austin's and Raleigh's and some of these other markets, supply is gonna be a problem for a while and it's gonna put a pretty big ceiling on rents if not cut into market rents for quite a long time. And and you don't get any relief on expenses. That's the issue, right? Your insurance is still up. Your property tax is still up. Your reserves. Your cash flow is way down. It's a it's a it's death by a thousand cuts.
1: If you just said, took the Sun Belt in general, and you've kind of hit on several markets, is the Sun Belt still for the next ten years the the place to be in your opinion? Yeah,
0: yeah, we think so. I think there will still be opportunity in some of the coastal markets as they've become almost price agnostic to cap rate. Um, it's still incredibly difficult to build in those markets. i think I think everything runs in cycles. You know, it became very uncool to be in the urban core. It became very cool to get outside of those markets and move. I think people are moving to a Texas or Atlanta or North Carolina for a very different reason. You know, they're usually following corporate reloads, which are driven by tax and friendly business. That's not changing anytime soon. But people generally want to be, you know, especially the younger generation, they want to be in the urban core. They want to be in the coastal markets. Really, really hope San Fran gets back to being a great city. It's it's not good for America just to have this amazing city with so much history and so much capacity and, and potential. And the tech, I mean, it's the it's the it's the best city in in America after maybe New York, but it's fallen off so bad. One could argue the contrarian, and you would say, you know, keep letting it fall a little bit. But there might be some point where people step into that a little bit and start to try to start to try to bring it back and the cycles will turn. New York is leading right now in rent growth. Took it right on the shorts, like right on the shorts, like all the way down. It is coming back up. It's leading the in it's leading the the markets in rent growth. Florida's having its its fun in the sun. Sunny place for shady people. <laughs> and, you know, I think the, the the growth markets will continue to be very steady, Eddie.
1: All right. So you said we got seven hundred and fifty million. You lever that up, call it a couple billion dollars worth of purchasing power. You said you can kind of invest across the stack. Is it fair to assume that like credit and things in that nature might be the first ways to deploy money until the deals get low enough to where you can actually start buying them? Or like how do you think about pacing through that capital?
0: We are we are gonna remain pretty patient on deploying the fund until until we have well, a clarity on the economy and Fed rates. You know, everyone's pitching this rescue capital. It's not rescue capital. You're replacing the equity at a basis that's still elevated above what it's worth, and that, in our opinion, is not worth a you know a thirteen or fourteen percent return today. So, you know, we do have the ability to do that. We have the ability to buy notes. We have the ability to buy credit and take over the asset. That has not. Played out yet, but will probably start to play out in the first half of 24. I don't think we'll put out more than five to 10% of the fund by the end of this year. You know, we are starting to see interesting opportunities. I just believe that the stress that's been building in the system will start to show its, you know, cracks here and and really become an opportunity heading into 24. And so while we have flexibility to invest rescue capital, we have the ability to invest development, et cetera, et cetera. it's the the returns will come from having that dry powder or being in the equity position and generally the best fund vintages are recession vintages
1: okay so that would be fair to assess that at least on the deal activity level it's going to be a slow rest of the year on creating action this is more of a leadership question what's what do you tell your company do you tell them like, let's keep underwriting and staying in the market. Like, how do you think about it from a company perspective?
0: Yeah, it's a tough one. I think most of them understand my my thought process. We do a lot of, you know, weekly leadership meetings with acquisitions. You know, there's two different sides, right? Like asset management operations, they're more intensely motivated and focused than ever because it's never been more difficult to operate. And so they're very motivated and focused. The acquisition side and even the fundraising side, because it's very difficult right now, it's all about kind of they are just leaning onto you for your expectations. If my expectations to them is I want you to find a deal that's fifty percent discount and I want them now, you know they're going to feel a lot of pressure and stress to go deliver. They're going to look at everything, it doesn't exist, and so they're going to get frustrated and either you know leave or do something different. If you have them incentivized for more of the long term and you explain to them why we're being patient and what we think is going to be available you know i think this next 10 year run for us could make the last 10 year run you know look paltry so it's all about keeping them focused on the long the long term goals they also understand that if we are early to deploy fund 2 a we have seed assets that could be looked upon negatively and as new investors are coming in they might not want legacy assets if we were to enter a, a recession so you have to you have to weigh a lot of different you know measures in the fund business but at the same time if we can get our 6 to 7 800 million dollar Prouder, they know they will make a lot of money putting that to work in some sort of environment over the next 2 years and so they just they just have to be patient and if and they all know this if you are not willing to be patient you know for what could be a great 10 20 year run with with us but this, this next 12 months is what will make or break people. And so you just gotta be intensely focused on, on surviving. And we keep saying survive to 25. I mean, it's just the, it's the focus for everybody, whether your acquisitions or you know, everyone else's carried interest has gone down, your capital distributions have gone down. You just gotta tighten the belt and, and be prepared.
1: I, I keep tying back to this. We, we've hit on it 10 times. Fundraising is difficult. I don't think I asked the final question which is, in your opinion, and maybe it's your opinion or it's what people are saying. What is the signal that, because capital kind of moves together? There's no uh, creative thinkers in the big capital world, but what would need to happen for them to say we're back in?
0: Well, you have to get back to like healthy risk adjusted returns relative to the fixed income markets. That's okay. Ultimately, what drives every investment decision in private equity? If I can get a five to seven percent in fixed income public credit, I have no need for fifteen percent equity levered. If I can deliver a fourteen percent private credit because everyone's desperate for debt because the banks aren't there, so I can get a five hundred spread and make fourteen percent net, I don't want equity. So until those returns come down to earth, or the equity returns become way outsized, we're gonna have a flat environment. It's just, it's just. Good finance. And so one of two things will happen. Either people will start to go, the system has broke me, I'm throwing back the keys. Now I can buy something for 40% off. So instead of trying to get a 15% equity return, I get a 25, time me up. I would love to have a 25 while I get 7% of my fixed income. That's freaking great. Yeah. That will draw them back off the sidelines. Conversely, we go back and we cut rates. You know, Generally they cut rates, 350 pips in a recession. So if we get back to a one and a half between a one and a half, two percent SOFR, that is probably the healthy landing spot to say I'm buying a five and a half cap, I'm taking it to a seven and seven and a half. You know, the demand in fundamentals are still okay. And fixed income returns and alternative returns are back down to the mid to low single digits. Now I'm willing to be back in the equity side for a fifteen net. And one of those things will have to happen, and they will happen. It's it's We're not going to just sit in this environment forever. You just, what feels like an eternity when you're in the moment, you look back on the GFC, for instance, and it's a three-year cycle of this. I mean, this is what people had to go through and you just, patience is the most critical point.
1: When you think about, now I'm like totally moving the conversation, the, the flavor of the week for the last two months has been AI. Do you even think about that? like? a team on it, okay
0: we are uh, yeah I won't say too much because we're very spent a lot of money on it and are very involved, but I think AI is like looking at the internet the first time I mean it is mind blowing what you can accomplish, and all I'll say, well, do you believe Goldman seventy million jobs will be replaced by AI? do we believe that that's incredibly deflationary could be could kind of just right away just Crush inflation, I don't know what it replaces, though, like does it replace it, it could theoretically it replaces all the jobs that require intelligence that are easy, like you know, so if you're a doctor or I mean not a doctor like an attorney, your job is knowing all the very difficult stuff that AI can now learn. What does that mean for tenants that are paying four grand a month? That might be an attorney. What does that mean for the demand? So we're trying to figure out just what does it all look like? don't have great answers, but we are trying to build out a, you know, we're spending a lot of time and money on just building out all the different data analytics, predictive AI into our operating portfolio, because yep. I think it's very, very cool. And will you will, you will be left behind very quickly if you're not paying attention to it.
1: Well, on that note, like, and you, and I, and I underlined this twice, and it's how we think a lot about it for, and you said operations, and you said, you know, we think we we've, paid attention to it for a long time and you ha- can hang your hat on, on, on operations and I'm off the backs of AI. Is there anything you see going into this next cycle of like how things will be operated differently or is it now just cheap money's not gonna save bad operations anymore and only good operations are, can survive?
0: I think either way, good operators will be the only ones that survive the next 12 months. But I think what you'll find is AI people who are first into ai and data analytics in general will be the ones that attract the most capital because they'll have the most insight and the most you know interesting macro reads on different submarkets you know in terms of like operations there's i wouldn't say like we we kind of think of it as like anything that can be automated as a back office function for people that can enhance how they do their job So we've gone through and looked at every workflow, every step of the way, for every position in the company to figure out what can be automated by AI and how do we enhance these people's role. And you almost think of like on-site, we'll go away from all these lease management and follow-up on collections and all this kind of nonsense. And you'll almost think of people on-site as like tenant concierge. They are there to service the resident, all their needs. but all of the day-to-day back office all the day-to-day management of paperwork and tasks and just workflow will be built out into some sort of enterprise system that is you know data technology and predictive ai and so you know it's going to be probably a lot of mistakes along the way a lot of issues you're starting to see a lot of different ai apps and you know various things you got to be really careful you will ruin your operations if you start just freely launching every sort of cool AI app out there. And your tenants will feel frustrated too when they keep getting notifications of a new service and then change and then back and forth. So you gotta really slow down and build out a really good process and have the right people in place. But I do think that if you're not paying attention to it, you will get left behind over the next two, three years.
1: All right, now I'm gonna go back again. When you think about buying, like a busted development, buying credit, doing things that are not just buying the property how do you generate that deal flow is that just having great relationships and having them contact you when they hear of something is those are those hires that you're going to make that are already
0: yeah in that world it's it's pretty much the same you've got different brokers though for different things you know when you're trying to sell a credit portfolio from a failed bank that's not you know generally not going to be you know jll calling you or northmark it's molus or somebody else that maybe is working as an ib the credit flow is really through the special servicers but more importantly it's through a lot of like the attorneys that manage that stuff yeah you know they're they're gonna be the first ones to kind of know where the issues are and start working with the servicers the servicers haven't been cool for 12 years you know in terms of like who's paying attention they will start to be they will start to be everyone's best friend again. And so but at the end of the day, the best brokers will be the first ones in, they will have they will win the trust of whatever servicers is dealing with delinquency or foreclosures and they will be the ones that will know who to bring deals to and ultimately it's going to come down to capital and execution ability and that's where, you know, this is a very different environment than what we've been in. Buying credit or a distressed property, you're dealing with basis creep, you're dealing with negative leverage, you're dealing with negative cash flows. You are dealing with someone that's in a lot of pain, possibly very angry, feels like they're being wronged. It's no longer friendly. This isn't like you make money, high five, I make money, high five. This is like you're trying to take what's mine and I hate you for it and I'm going to do everything I can to stop you. But at the end of the day, it's going to happen either way. The lender is coming for it. And so you just have to have. Well, really, you got to have we have a, we have a great general counsel. You got to have a great credit investing team, and you got to be willing to kind of get dirty, because at the end of the day, the pre- people are really suffer, The residents, I mean, they are the ones where this thing's just running into the ground, and so the cities start getting involved. They start launching all types of lawsuits against the property. So you're absorbing all that, and so it takes capital because you might have to close in 30 days. You might have to close all cash. You might have to do financing afterwards. So you know, there's just a lot of different things that go into buying these types of assets that, you know, capital will be critical, operations will be critical, and the relationships will be more critical than ever. But, you know, that's generally when you're going to produce best returns. I mean, our best deals were deals where we had to fight the city, we had to come in and, you know, repair 50% of the down units, but you're, you're going to get a good basis. And if you know what you're doing, you can hit it out of the park.
1: So you on that on that type of transaction you're underwriting obviously the real estate and the fundamentals of it but then you're also maybe underwriting the legal ramifications who the seller is everything that you might have to deal with in the, in the courts
0: you you know you might get sucked into time sucks depositions legal costs millions of dollars blown away and so you've got to have clear path to title if you're getting into an ugly situation in credit where you've got a combative seller and you've got a very murky outlook, you will find yourself in a, in a lot of trouble and you can burn millions of dollars with no outcome. Not to mention more importantly than the money is just the time suck on your team and yourself trying to get this thing across the finish line. So we are pretty picky. We want, if we're going to look at anything, I mean, we got to have clear path to title. And generally the ones that you want are the people that have come to the realization that, You know, I'm burning all this cash. I don't want to burn cash. Help me get out of this. But it might require some, you know, creativity on buying the credit side and and working with the lender. And so just you got to have it all in
1: your repertoire. And on development, are you thinking about ground up or you're just saying about buying busted developments or ground up deals being delivered that miss? Yeah,
0: I we're more. I mean, we would do like some ground up. That's interesting. I mean, we're starting to see some good land discounts but generally we feel like existing assets will be the best opportunity more importantly you know the 60 70 80% developed deal that goes to foreclosure yeah that'll be you know we've probably seen four or five of those so far and we think we're still really early
1: and that and that's just because like debt ate them alive during floating rate debt ate <laughs> them alive during the development
0: yeah floating rate debt ate them alive and they they the developers had a tough run yeah they absorbed all the inflationary costs of 21 22 they paid probably pretty high land prices. They absorbed all the credit rate increases. They're coming into an environment where obviously liquidity's kind of dried up. Core plus or core returns are not really generally attractive right now. You can get the same return in a money market account. So you've lost your, your pricing power and you're delivering into a market that probably has some pretty soft market rents for that product. And so what a lot of these groups are saying is like, Just run the math. Like, where do I get out of this thing? I'm probably not getting the equity back on some of this stuff because I had a 10%, 15%, 20% price overrun on my hard costs. Now my rents that were supposed to be two grand are 2,500 or 2,200, and I'm stabilizing at a six debt yield that I need an eight to refinance. So I'm just going to lose it either way. Why do I want to bleed out a million dollars? So they'll do like a deed in lieu or some sort of ability to avoid foreclosure or avoid, you know. Trying to continue to fund this thing or pay down or whatever to get to mainly get off the recourse, but we've we've looked at a couple of deals where you know they were in it probably eighty percent done, had no path out, and you know needed to just get out of the burn and, and throw it back and so they did, and that will that will continue. I mean, I'd say if you're not delivering kind of north of a six percent return on cost, you, you probably are starting to try to figure out what does my extra strategy look like.
1: Hug your local developer. It's a brutal
0: business. It is. It's tough right now. It's
1: it's brutal. All right. If Scott chapter one built the business, you said that the next 10 years might be your best 10 years. But for you personally, how do you th- what do you think you'll be working on? Like what consumes your day over the next 10 years? You're no longer fixing toilets and <laughs> on site every day. Occasionally. Occasionally.
0: Yeah. I mean, look, we've we've definitely scaled. We've got 80, 85 people kind of at corporate on the investments team. We've got a wonderful executive team. So we've we've kind of got all of our bases covered, right? And day to day. Mark, my brother, runs really he's COO. so he runs all operations for both property management plus corporate. I'd say my my focus, you know, I've got Megan, she runs all financial accounting and everything for the funds. And then Patrick's fundraising, and then we've got a great general counsel. So um every base is covered. So if Scott says, I'm just not going to show up to work today, the only thing that would stop happening is we stopped growing. So that puts all the onus of growth on me. And so I'd say that most of my time will be spent perfecting operations to make sure that we are scalable with whatever we're going to do. But generally, the day-to-day is, is in good shape. Focusing on new strategies for whatever capital is available that we think is an opportunistic strategy. So, and then building out, still chairing IC. So I got to, I got to be very, I'm very involved in the investment acquisitions front and then mm-hmm. fundraising, trying to figure out what the right strategies are, whether it's a value add vehicle, opportunistic to credit, totally get out of residential in 10 years, who knows? Like there will be different things that come our way. My job is to make sure that we stay kind of on the forefront because we built up all this infrastructure. Now I've got to make sure we have capital and resources to do what everyone's you know, supposed to do.
1: To the extent you're willing to share, what does your relationship with Patrick look like? He's head of capital formation. You said he's out raising money. You're raising money. Even in an environment like right now, why did you hire that role? And how do you think about that in the 10-year vision of,
0: yeah. um, of what's being built out there? Look, I think you know it's a, it's a top three or position role in the company. He is critical to our success long-term. He's also brought a lot of great relationships. And while it's a very difficult environment to fundraise in, we're having the right conversations with all the right groups. So whether it's a commitment today or it's a commitment in Fund 3 or 4 or 5, these are people that we want to know and we want to get in front of. And so that's his entire job. And he's done a great job at it. My job is to make sure everyone feels comfortable investing with us, understands the story of S2, how we do things, why we do things. And ultimately what they want to know is how do you view the world and do you view it the way I view it? And if so, you know, then it becomes, okay, check that box. Now can you execute? We've got a great track record of executing. And then they have to decide if they really like the strategy. And you know, they've, a lot of these groups have multi relationships. And so you're just trying to figure out who's the one, two, three, four, five. I mean, these are 30 to hundred million dollar checks. You don't need a hundred friends. But you need to build out your five to ten that you can rinse and repeat with. We're very fortunate, you know, all of our fund one LPs have re upped So we've got a good base. Now we just, you know, got to grow. And then, you know, if we get down the road and we think, you know, development's attractive again or credit or SFR, BTR, whatever you want to call it, that's my job to make sure that we're paying attention to it and focused on it and continue to scale.
1: If you achieved your goals over the next 10 years. And maybe we'll be on episode like six by then. What would S2, what might S2 look like 10 years from now?
0: I mean, we want to hit $50 billion in transactions. Okay. Where are you That's, at now? We're at 10. Okay. feel like we really spent the first five years of, of our 11-year run doing nothing. Uh, <laughs> what do you mean? I was just figuring out what the hell I'm doing. So I feel like it started to click after five years of like, ah, okay, I got it and then now i can see a vision to like how i want to grow this thing and then i feel like in 22 i kind of had my next aha of what we want to do the next 10 years or 20 years and you know i think that that's kind of where we're we're entering we're kind of entering that it's really the third chapter yeah you know second kind of happened half halfway and then now we're in better shape than ever with capital re- connections and and resources I'd say Graystar is the, is the uh, certainly not, we don't want to manage third party anything. But if I looked at a shop and said, who do I who do I admire, who I think does it right, Graystar and GID are two of the ones that we think are spectacular. They've got development platform, credit platform, they've got core plus SMAs, they've got core open-end vehicles, they've got valued vehicles, opportunistic vehicles, special sets vehicles. All of it built around usually some sort of residential strategy. Where that's where we want to sit. We want to sit within private equity, six to seven strategies over the next 10, 20 years, all in residential. And and I think that, you know, is a trillion plus dollar industry, you know, it, pretty easy to build some AU in there.
1: All right. I would not be doing myself a service because I miss you dearly on the Twitter platform. Why are you not on Twitter for everybody wondering? Yeah, so... And people, there are a lot of people wondering.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure there's uh, the people. Uh, they, they, we became an RIA, which is a registered investment advisor. We started the application, and in basically mid-22, we just got our formal approval, uh, beginning of 23. My general counsel and chief compliance officer was... Having little mini heart attacks every day (laughs) and texting me like screaming at me, and the main reason is the SEC is, especially as a new RIA, the SEC is just under uh, watching us with a microscope. I hate that because I I love the transparency of just sharing things. It was awesome talking all the time about what we're seeing in the environment market. Some of it's you know we're. uh, I feel like there's just a lot of like, kind of like, don't look at my shit. Like, I'm gonna hide it over here. And like, you know, I try to post like a detailed track record because I would love every other operator to have to share what they look like, right? We operate in this private real estate environment where it's like, look over here, don't look over here. And like bring some transparency to the industry a little bit would be great. Well, I got just, I mean, I posted that. (laughs) I got six phone calls from all types of people that just ripped me. And so basically at the end of the day, I had to make a business decision. I want to grow. I want to be an RAA. You know, when Starwood was asking me, please don't talk about this on Twitter. And that was starting to become a business decision of like, okay, you know, people are paying attention and people are getting upset for me sharing things. And the SEC is going to be watching us. I, I just deleted the whole thing. You also wouldn't believe the amount of technology that these investors have to run technology backgrounds on everything you've ever posted or liked or commented on, or even viewed all the way back to the very, 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 very beginning of your childhood. You know, I was 17 when I got on social media for the first time like can Facebook and stuff. I, I deleted all that because I was getting all these like, here's your report of everything you've done and liked, and this is how we've graded you. And I'm like, dude, I was 17, like, come on. So I just cleared it all out, said... I'm, I'm done with it. And, you know, once in a while, I'll post on LinkedIn and then I'll just come talk to you on the podcast.
1: We miss you. I don't know if maybe I'll end up in your bucket one day. Oh. I don't know if we're we're quite where you're at yet, but the the conversations with some people about you need to tone it down or you need to be thinking about these things. It's literally been on my to-do list for like six months is to go through every tweet I've ever liked and just unwind them all. Yeah. Do it now if you're going to ever do it. I'm, um, I'm, I'm a sucker for a spicy take. I, I agree. That's why I love Elon. God bless him. All right, dude, we'll end it cool. there. We'll do a trilogy eventually. Thanks again for everything. You got it. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com.